Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. I'd like to tell you that uh, this episode was one of the very hardest for me to make physically. I mean, in the sense of effort that I needed to put in. And that's for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'll get on with that later on. But um, it went down to the point where I just recorded a discussion about an hour long or so with um, with our friends. Both uh, both Alex from History Impossible. Yeah, again, he's... <laughs> I think he's a regular at this point. And uh, another friend of ours, ours um, Keaton. Michael Keaton, if I'm not mistaken... <sighs> I haven't actually slept for a very long time, so I'm, I'm skipping some, some lines here. But um, but yeah, we had a discussion because, again, I have a bunch of emails about, well, what is socialism, what isn't, and people who call themselves socialists and all that nonsense. And this comes from all sides of the political spectrum. And yeah, we, we sat down with these two intelligent gentlemen, and um, we had a, a conversation which ended up it started out about socialism and ended up being about how we treat very, the very perspectives of, of our modern, modern world. It was something else, but I really needed this because, yeah, uh, it took a lot of effort for me to even make what I'm going to tell you interesting. And this is, this is going to be a pretty long one, so buckle up. But to, just, a, just a side note, because that, that discussion is going to be the next one. And uh, I, I came to a conclusion, and that was spontaneous in my head. And uh, I guess I have to say thanks to my political science of education, that um, that currently, as I understood from our debates, the main problem seems to be that we're trying to describe a completely new world, a new reality that now exists, using the terms and boxes and categories of a previous age that, you know, we still cling on to, even though it's obvious it's no longer gone. Seems to me that we label people, you know, socialist, capitalist, libertarian, I don't know, anything really, and and not only people or political views, but many other things, using the terminology that just was not was not there, is it was not adequate and, and was there before. Basically we're using the terminology of a previous era. I, I like to compare it that um it seems to me that we're using we're trying to explain a computer using only terms that are related to clockwork. That's a sneak peek, but, 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 but we got to that, and then we, again, obviously went down a very deep political philosophy rabbit hole. It has a lot of, a lot of political jokes in, in there as well, because I don't know why, but Heaton from Political Orphanage, he just somehow manages to, to do beat-by-beat beat things that just remind me of weird Radio Yerevan jokes. So if, you, if you've missed that, then, then we had that. But yeah, that also kind of ties into what I'm going to tell you to talk to you about today. And again, like I said, I haven't slept for so many hours. I've been working, and and reality around me is collapsing, and people are yelling at me. But this just had to be done. And, and again, it, it's a pre-study once more. You see, originally I wanted to make this show about about more political. I think craziness in Russia, because if you remember the last episode, I told you about how. There's this criminalization of society, how violence is becoming normal, and, and how we, we see these acts of terrorism and assassinations and all that stuff, right? Well, just after that, I found out that um, there's an incident happening in Moscow, and it's still ongoing, so that's why I'll, I'll cover it in detail once it once it's kind of done, I suppose. But but the gist of it is that um, Ramzan Kadyrov's Chechens, you know, <laughs> they're also Wahhabites, by the way, very radical. They're... they're um, as far as I know, they're they're a sect, a subsect of of of, um, of Sufi Islam that are very radical in their views, of something like that. It's a specific Caucasus Islam, uh, because yeah, I've, turns out I have a uh, plenty of Muslim listeners from the Arabian Peninsula. I guess well, I guess, I guess maybe my, my comment about how I really liked that one Saudi Arabian uh, comedy cartoon really helped. So uh, well, you're welcome. And and yeah, the the Ramzan Kadyrovs, very radical Muslims, basically you know being thugs because they run around in Moscow uh, in organized groups and do well crime and stuff, and and they could manage to squeeze out an illegal plot of land, basically just by force or or something, and they wanted to build a mosque there, 
for the ever-growing Moscow Muslim community, since, uh, surprise, actual ethnic Russians are, um, well, no longer a majority in, in Moscow. So basically, they're doing this. And as you know, Ramzan Kudov is super pro-war. At the same time, Russian ultranationalists find out about this whole event and create their own counter-protest, you know, protesting, protesting this mosque. And not like they're going to go protest the war, or they're going to protest the fact that the land and, and was illegally acquired, there was a bunch of problems with the mosque. No, no, no. They protest on, on purely racist terms, like racist language, and in a brutal way, yelling that uh, no mosques on Christian ground, Russia only for Russians, tons of slurs being thrown out. Basically extremely rude. But, you know... They're also pro-war, after all, they're Girkin's buddies, so, you know, it is what it is. And then, well, Ramzan Khadirov does what, what's best for him, as usual, because he just ignores laws, he doesn't care, he's a, like, local overlord, he's a warlord there, and, and you know, he's barely Putin's vassal anyways. So he does what he does best and, you know, tells his, his, his guys to, to film a video. And they do. And the video is exactly as you would expect. It's full of hatred and rage and the fact that we will shoot you all. It's like threats and whatever. Like threats of real violence. People are holding guns there. And you know, it's, it's kind of weird because we were seeing there a conflict develop because both of these sides are radical in their own separate ways because as you remember, people in Dagestan don't really see themselves very close to Moscow. And the Ramzan Zidov is, well, an idiot and violent one of that. And, uh, He's been running, ignoring all the consequences. The problem is, yeah, it's kind of weird that their allies are very, basically, neo-Nazi Russians. And now the clash is happening. And and in response to this Ramzan Glirov's guy's response, right, there's a video by a subgroup of Wagner, who are also hardcore neo-Nazis, and they basically also take up their guns and literally threaten the Chechens. And if you know something about Ramzan Glirov and, and his, well, very poor, tiny little ego among other tiny things that he may or may not possess. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been active. I mean, currently, I, I've heard, I've heard like, people reporting me that there's kidnappings involved of, of people's wives and there are racial attacks on the street. Like, gang violence between pro-war side and a pro-war side, and both of them are idiots because one, one is basically legit documented that they have given guns to ISIS... Yeah, that that exists. Uh, Ramzan Gudirov, of course, will deny it, but 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 yeah, legit claims that he's actually funded ISIS at some point. Uh, also, he's also a massive hypocrite. I mean, um, I'm I'm quite sure that that if he would care about Muslims, because he likes to yell every time something bad happens to a Muslim anywhere else on the planet, in the Western world, that is, well, he he's very loud and yelling and angry and stupid. But, of course, you know, the Uyghurs in China, yeah, he doesn't care about them. It's, they're not pretty. He's as much as an authentic Muslim as... I, I don't even know. He, he's just wearing Prada shoes and shooting people in the head. That's what he is. I, I don't really... I don't know. But, but he's up against racists and neo-Nazis, like real ones, with, with swastikas tattooed on them. And, and they themselves say they're neo-Nazis on YouTube. And documents, together with all the various ways how they have actually tortured animals and killed them to prepare to kill Ukrainians. So now we have basically, I don't know, uh, there would be a movie about this, it would be called, I don't know, uh, Radical Islam versus Neo-Nazis. And trust me on this one. I've spent eight minutes, almost nine minutes, telling you this story, and it's not finished yet. And I will make a full episode of this whole incident. That's, again, still ongoing. But I dropped this insane story because I have something bigger. And that doesn't happen often. And this is a bit serious because, uh, you know, it's really big. Again, nothing, not much really is happening on the front lines right now, but but this is huge. And, and this, I have to give credit where credit is due, uh, is um, kudos to the Dossier Center. And specifically, also involving himself was, well, none other than Mikhail Khodorkovsky himself. Yeah, surprising, isn't it? But uh, yeah, well, um, such things happen. Anyway, I got my hands on an interview, a very good one. I had to do translations and a bit of personal background checking on, on all in all, but um, yeah, 
like I said, it was worth it. And once again, I extremely apologize because to do translation work and make sure that this works because for the most part, oh, the guy basically speaks like he would be writing a um, a police report. And, and it, it sounded bad in English, okay? So bear with me, but, but the content is, is really good. And once I'll get some sleep, finally, I'll get better as well. But in general, I want to tell you about one Gleb Karakulov. He is a captain of the Federal Guard Service, FSO, Federalnaya Služba Ochrana. That's how it's called in Russian. I, I would rather, you know, be surprised, but still. Until mid-October 2022, he worked with Vladimir Putin as an engineer in the Presidential Communications Directorate of the FGS. His duties include provi included provision of secure communications for the president. In early October, he traveled to Astana, where the head of state was to participate in three, week, in three events. The sixth summit of the Conference of Engagement and Confidence Building Measures in Asia, a meeting on, on, of the Council of the CIS Heads of State, and the Russia Central Asia Summit. On 14th of October, the last day of his business trip, Karakulov left his colleagues and flew to Istanbul with his wife and daughter. Now, the dossier guys... Amazing dudes. They spent over 10 hours in conversation with the officer about his decision to leave the, like, basically Russian version of Secret Service and Russia in general. Karakulov, so far, is the highest-ranking intelligence officer in Russia's recent history to defect to the West. And, uh, yeah, we actually have verification. I mean, claims like these, from people like these, has to have to be double-checked. and It's a bit of a mess, but ugh, it is what it is. Anyhow, his work passport is listed as valid in the database of Ministry of Internal Affairs. The dates of the border crossing stamps also coincide with dates that, well, the officer named in the interview. The authenticity of the identity card of the Federal Guard Service officer provided by him was also apparently confirmed by uh, people who are close to special services. I didn't do that, but, you know, it's the dossier center here. And, um, yeah... The records of the Federal Tax Service and the Print Pension Fund do not list any of his places of work, but that is normal because, I mean, these guys are on the level where basically they're not listed. So the fact that he has no job basically proves that, you know, he's onto something. And, well, otherwise, there's, an, there's a police arch archive database that has some info that he actually does serve in this Federal Guard service. Of course, profession and anything else is totally secret. Biography was also checked, and he, well, yeah, is actually studied where he claims, in the Mozhaisky Military Space Academy, no less, by the way. He had been registered in the dormitory there. He has also tons of the social media posts to, to kind of prove his identity. And he still does, yes, have a wife and daughter, because, you know, I just want to tell you the, the whole fact-checking of, of such a person, you know, what, what, what journalists go through to, you know, confirm this, that this is not a fake, this is not an age, all this stuff, right? Social media passes, documents pass, all this stuff. Uh, actually, well, I can't remember from Latvia, but, but the CS Center tried to contact his family, were instantly blocked. And all that, it was just crazy. And, um, well, the final piece of evidence that truly puts everything on the cake, because I'm just telling you, this is too important to just be left on my own claims. This is a collaboration with a lot of people, and, yeah, it's true. And, um, well, some nice people have provided a report from um, the Ministry of Interior on, of Russia, and the report says that a case was brought against him, Karakulov, for desertion during mobilization, part 3 of Article 338 of the Criminal Code. Well, the case was brought, brought on October 26th, the wanted case on December 20, 21st. The initiator was criminal investigation of main department of internal affairs of Moscow. And no measure of restraint was chosen against Karakulov, because at that point he was, you know, long gone from Russia. So, you know, showing you some um, background of all this stuff, and um, the interview is pretty long, but I think, you know, it's, it's well worth to, um, to go over it. I, I will be skipping some, some parts of it. They concern whether or not he's met Putin's ex-wife and stuff like that. But the things that you, um, I think, really should know. When did, you, when did you decide it was time to quit your job? 
There were many indications that I was not ready to make deals with my conscience while doing my job. I was due to retire in less than two years. I planned to serve out my time, pay off my mortgage, and that would be it. I wouldn't renew my contract. But in February 2022, a criminal war broke out, and I could no longer make compromises with myself. I could not remain in the service of this president. I consider him a war criminal. Even though I am not directly involved in this war, it is no longer possible for me to carry out his criminal orders or stay in his service. You are not in Russia. How did you leave? It all started on 21st of Fe 24th of February. Like many other Russian citizens, I hoped that there would be no escalation. In the morning of 24th of February, I must have spent half an hour in a state of shock. Then, apparently as a result of all these worries, I developed some health issues. I spent three months on sick leave. I managed to calm down somewhat and started telling myself that it was none of my business. But naturally, I had already realized that I had to try and somehow leave before my retirement. Unfortunately, my external service passport had expired, and I had to start the process of, of applying for a regular external passport. Yeah, Russia has internal and external passports. Internal passports don't have biometrics data, because, you know, Russia is really big, and, well, you don't have to have a passport there to, unless you want to travel abroad. Surprisingly enough, similar in the United States. Not so in Europe, mind you. Well, at least not in the parts that I know of. Heading on. It took me three months plus holidays. As a result, my first business trip abroad began after a long break on August the 1st and lasted a whole 19 days. I found myself right in the middle of these discussions, you know, with people even savoring every detail of what was happening in the war. I can't describe how disgusting and unpleasant it was. So, your colleagues in the FGS were discussing how things were going at the front? Yes, and even taking pleasure in these discussions. I don't know. I had this feeling of total disgust. I decided to quit. It's hard to terminate a contract in such a service, but it can be done. Then came 21st of September, the mobilization. I understood that even if I left the service, I would become a reserve officer and would be sent directly to the front immediately after my discharge. I could not agree to, the, uh, to be part of the criminal war. I returned from my business trip on 22nd of September. A few days later, I found out that I had been signed up for the next assignment, this time to Astana, Kazakhstan. That was a good opportunity. What happened in Astana? How did you plan? We flew out to make preparations on the October 6th. My wife stayed back in Moscow for a few more days and flew with our daughter to Astana on 8th of October. We had tried to fit our entire life into three suitcases. In your it's your business trip. You fly out with your FGS colleagues. A few days later, your spouse joins you with no questions asked by any of your colleagues? I assume the spouses of the FGS officers do not usually accompany them on trips. It's not like she stayed right there, in the same hotel. We only met once before traveling to the airport together. She came to pick up my suitcase because I'd imagine that if I left carrying a suitcase during lunchtime in the middle of the day when all our employees were coming in for lunch, it could attract attention. It took her literally 2-3 minutes, but she was very nervous. At that moment, I was hanging around with our daughter near the hotel so as to not to draw attention. Finally, you decided it was time to escape. What happened? There was no clear feeling that it would be a particular hour of a particular day. Everything was in a state of flux and I kept thinking, right, not today, it won't work today either. So I kept postponing it for about two or three days until many factors aligned. The most important one was that in the 14th of October, that was the last day of the trip. Our group of the FGS officers was due to fly back to Moscow on the morning of 15th October. It was not possible to put it off any longer. Another factor, we have external service passports for work purposes. They handed them out to us in Astana because we had to prove our identities in the course of work. I remember my shock in the morning of 14th of October. Our group leader's assistant told us to hand them in. That is, before that I had my external passport with me for a week. We were still in the middle for assignment, and they were already telling us to hand them in. I'm sitting there with my headphones on, monitoring the equipment, or looking things up on YouTube. Some colleagues were handing theirs in, and I was pretending not to have heard it until the very end. I mean, even, I mean, even if someone had said to me, well, where's your passport? I would have said, I don't know, at a hotel maybe? I had also agreed with colleagues that I would go to souvenir shopping after work. That is, I was playing for time so that they would not start looking for me that early. How did you leave? Well, my wife, our daughter, and I set off uh, to the airport at about 3 o'clock. The guys who were off duty soon decided to go shopping. They kept texting me, asking me where I was. I responded that I also had wanted to go shopping, but developed bad stomach cramps after lunch. At this point, you are on your way to airport. Yeah. The whole center was cordoned off because of the summits. I was also worried about potential traffic jams, but there was no congestion on the road to the airport. 
Then comes the usual check-in for the Istanbul flight and bag drop-off. I thought they might ask me some questions about my service passport to the airport, as it differs a bit from the regular civilian ones, a different color. No one asked anything. From then on, it was only the matter of my own nerves. The flight was delayed by about an hour. We took off at 5 p.m. By that time, they had already started looking for me. I'd probably texted that I would not go souvenir shopping around an hour ago or something. That, you know, I wrote that I would go to work instead. At about 5.15 p.m., that is about 5-10 minutes before departure, I simply turned my phone off. Okay, let's be... And then journalist continues. Let's be clear. An active FGS officer leaves his place of work. He's gone for several hours. At that moment, he's going through border control. And no one freaks out. No one goes off looking for you with guns and dogs and no one tries to force your plane to land. Your colleague's calm reaction is staggering. I did have to confuse them a bit. They must have been furious. You fly for a few hour, a few more hours, your plane lands and you turn your phone on. Are you bombarded with messages? Calling you a scumbag and a traitor? There wasn't exactly a flurry of messages. There were about five. There had been many messages at this point when I turned my phone off. Exchanges of the type, where is he? Maybe he went over there, maybe he's already there, and etc. But there were two of, or three messages of the you scumbag type. Plus, the operations department officer had tried to make contact with me. What do you mean by the operations department officer had tried to make contact? Well, he thought I would answer him. He tried to make contact, to text me, like, how are, how are you doing? Well, more likely, this is Mr. N, get in touch ASAP, stuff like that. How soon do you think your colleagues caught on into what has happened? I can only guess. If I flew out at 5.30pm, it must have dawned on them by 6pm. But it was only a realization and they would have had to trace the whole chain of events during the escape. The officer, the officer from the operations department texted me uh, at around 8pm, asked at a time. That is, had the boarding been delayed for another half an hour or an hour, you would probably have been apprehended at the airport. Didn't want to think about it at the time. My wife was very upset. I remember well the incident in Belarus with a plane that was forced to land. Uh, note from me, that is the incident where uh, the, the journalist who was uh, a Belarusian opposition one, he flew from Greece to Vilnius in Lithuania, and in the middle of, of the flight when they were flying over Belarus, yeah, Lukashenko just launched a MiG fire plane and forced the plane to land and grabbed the, the opposition journalist and smacked him straight into prison. Because that is uh, the sad reality that we live in these days. But, you know, just to explain the, the event that he's he's working on this. Still, getting on. I tried to reassure myself that I was just a rank-and-file engineer. Why force the plane to land because of, well, me? But you are not just any engineer. You are a FSG officer. Obviously, in terms of Russian law, you were committing a criminal offense. Through... How could one reassure oneself in such a, such a situation? I simply knew that it would have been an even bigger crime if I had stayed on my job. Not under the Russian law. Not a crime in... Uh, Human terms. Then I'm uh, I'm going to skip some parts because again it, this is a very long one, and um, yeah he talks about how his family he doesn't speak with them because they are very pro Putin, and however still after his departure they have been visited and how he managed to deal with his wife who is a very brave woman mind you, but um, the really important part is you know he also later on starts responding about his service and how did he join and all that stuff, you know. That's where, I think, the part that is of the concern to you guys really starts. How does one normally join the FGS? Oh, that is the FGS Academy in Orel. Most of my colleagues graduated from the Academy, but some 20-30% to 30 came from the Defense Ministry, while a few others transferred from the Civil Service. How strict is the selection process for admission? They examine your CV and conduct an interview. There is also an aptitude test and all sorts of logic tasks. It's a long process. How long did your tests last? I went to Moscow for the first time in January 2009. By the time I graduated, I knew, uh, I knew I'd, go, I got, I'd got in. It was in June. That, is, that said, it took six, mo six months. What did you do in the FGS? What was your typical day like? I uh, was an engineer in the Presidential Communications Directorate. We encrypt communications of the top, top state officials, the president and the prime minister. I was part of the unit that we call 
the field unit, which enables communications for the president and prime minister during their business trips. That is throughout Russia and abroad. Astana was either 183rd or 184th business trip. We have encryption and channeling equipment. For the telephone to work, you need a lot of additional equipment. For want of a better explanation, the equipment required for the shortest business trip would probably fill precisely half a commas truck, and if there's a large vol volume of tasks to do on a trip, yeah, you'd need probably a whole commas truck. Besides communications, what does the FGS consist of, and what other units are there? There's a vast number of departments of every kind. Absolutely all aspects of President's work as the government are the responsibility of the FGS. There are matters of physical safety and security, and the organization of all events involving top officials. Everyone knows that there are chefs who cook for the president and the prime minister. All food is inspected and there is a special service running these tests, the Biological Safety Center. There are even firefighters, engineers and firefighters travel with us on business trips to study the relevant uh, technical and fire regulations. Some units are responsible for the information technology component, video conferencing, internet access and workplace, workplace support. The only thing is that uh, Putin's situation is a bit different. He does not use the internet. Uh, by the way, a fact that I have been telling you for a long time, and, uh, well, here you go. Now I have an actual written source who, that has reported this to someone else, not just, you know, all the people who have been calling me and telling me about this fact that, yes, he, indeed, he does not use the internet. He does not even know how to use a smartphone. Just saying. And again, you know, like I said at the beginning, political conversation deals with this stuff. Mm, quote. The unit exists because he does, he does use video conferences. They were in particular demand in 2020 with the outset of COVID. So, uh, basically it's a state within a state. A uh, seriously autonomous organization, yes. Which unit within the FGS is considered the most prestigious? Well, in my view, communication is the backbone of command and control. But the presidential security service is more important because they are in direct contact with the president and the prime minister. Vladimir Putin. Have you seen him? How much does his television image differ from what he's like in real life? I saw him during my first business trip, in Kazan in October 2009. I've never had a chance to talk to him. That is, I can be there, see and observe everything that's going on, but I don't have the opportunity to come up and talk to him. The president's work schedule is extremely tight, and he's always surrounded by security personnel. Many people. So no. It would be problematic to walk up to him and say, and say ask him, hey, how are you? Putin works a lot. You can see during his business trips, he does not go to bed until 2 or 3 in the morning Moscow time. When he was in Kamchatka, he had a meeting in the middle of the night simply because it was daytime in Moscow and it was convenient for him. Is it common for employees to discuss their bosses? Does this happen in the FGS? Do the FGS officers discuss the president? Well, they call him the boss, worship him in every way, and only ever talk to him in those terms. Where does Vladimir Putin get his information from? How much vacuum he's in? Like, you said he doesn't use the internet. And uh, I, I like to I like you to pay a special attention to this here thing, because this guy, then again, we have documented evidence that he is who he claims he is, and we have no reason to suspect that he would be lying, especially since now he's a wanted criminal in Russia. But he just, yeah, he confirmed a bunch of my sources who have been telling me this for a long time already. So pay attention. Mm, quote. He doesn't use a mobile phone. I mean, in all my years of service, I haven't seen him once with a mobile phone. During business trips, if we accompany the Prime Minister, there is usually another person who travels with us who is in charge of the internet, a digital office, a laptop, and access to the network. With Putin, he's not needed. What's the point of internet? I'll print it out for you. <laughs> That's... he's joking there. But no, he doesn't use the internet or a mobile phone. He only receives information from his closest circle, which means he lives in a kind of informa informational vacuum. It is commonly believed that, that Mr. Putin relies on the Secret Service's intelligence reports. Are they his source of information? Yes, yes they are. Does the president watch TV? This is a very important thing because it denotes that, well, Putin has bought in his own hubris. Look, like, totally. The president insists on having Russian television in every venue he stays in. Is Putin really in lockdown all the time? Yes, he is. We still have a self-isolating president. We have to observe strict quarantine for two weeks before any event, even those lasting 15 to 20 minutes. There's a pool of employees who have been cleared, who underwent this two-week quarantine. They are considered clean and can work in the same room as Putin. Do the staff have any idea to, as to why such strict lockdown is, in, is still in place? 
everyone is a little perplexed as to why this is still going on because everyone has been forced to get vaccinated. Everyone undergoes health screenings, monitors their health, and takes regular tests. I know that all the, all the president's aides take PCR tests several times a day. I have no idea why he's probably just worried about his health. Maybe like uh, Sol Professor Solovic has been telling us all the time, he is terminally ill after all. You know, these rumors have been going around and that's why he's afraid of catching COVID as well. It was not something my colleagues discussed. If he has any health issues, they must be due to his age. Well, he probably does have them, but it's nothing too serious, I guess. This is the question that um, now obsesses about half of the world's population. How is his health? I can tell you that I went on many business trips with him. And he went on many trips before 2020. After that, he stayed in his bunker and maybe made just one maximum three business trips a year. Given the fact that there had been many business trips, only one or two were cancelled because of his health. One or two business trips over what period? Over the entire time I worked here. Only one or two business trips cancelled since 2009? Yes. So, in 13 years, only a couple of business trips have been cancelled because of Putin's health. Yes, quite possible. In fact, they are... They, the two cancellations, happened back to back, one after the other. He's in better health than many other people his age. He has annual medical checkups, as for this year, we usually learn about the need to install communications at the central clinical hospital in advance. Normally, these checkups uh, take place in late summer or early autumn. Or, or early autumn. Well, this time it was April. Do Vladimir's, Vladimir Putin's relatives also have to quarantine before seeing him? Can't say for sure. I don't know what they do. Does the FGS even know if Vladimir Putin has relatives? Have they seen anyone in person? It's an open secret that he has children, whom he calls these women for some reason. Again, the very same thing that literally everyone who's paying attention actually knows. But unless I can verify information personally, I'm not ready to state it is definitely the case. Once we were on the business trip, during our shift, and the telephone it told us that Yekaterina had an aide-de-camp and that she was on holiday at her residence in Sochi. Putin was there at the same time. Uh, Yekaterina being his uh, oldest daughter. Well, allegedly, but again, well, quite likely so. I'll just run through all uh, the entire list of Vladimir Putin's known relatives. So, Katerina Tikhonova is protected by, by an FGS officer? That's his lover. Yes, and she vacations at the same time and in the same residence as Putin. And then, you know, he goes, he goes through all of this stuff. Uh, by the way, interesting thing from his relatives, because, yeah, again, it's the whole list of suspected people. Some of them I actually haven't ever mentioned in the show because they weren't as important, so I'm going to skip over that part. Again, this is already pretty long. But interestingly enough, uh, what matters is that there's this question of, does the president have grandchildren? I don't know. My colleagues never discussed them. They did discuss Alina Kabayeva, though, the fact that they cohabit. But it was still, by the way, a rumor. Do your colleagues say anything about Putin and Alina Kabayeva's children? No, they did not discuss them. Well, to be more precise, rather they did discuss it, but it's still a rumor at this stage. Not, it's not something I can confirm with certainty, albeit indirectly. And here, uh, a bit more interesting things uh, start to show up. Svetlana Krivorogi is also named in connection with Vladimir Putin. Allegedly, allegedly, they have a daughter. Look, I haven't heard anything. But given the fact that I encounter many facts from Alexei Navalny's investigations during our business trips, I know that what he says is true. Thus, I can conclude that this is also true about Krivonogi. What details from the Navalny team's investigations have you been able to verify personally? Well, the most sensational was Putin's palace. Everyone over there tried to convince the media that it was in just another hotel. Naturally, they also wanted to understand what was going on. I approached a colleague. I, if, I, if I tend to travel to yet-to-be-rigged-up residences, well, he regularly goes to Sochi and Petersburg. That is, he spends a lot of time there. If anyone knows anything, that's him for sure. Especially as he's in charge of radio communications and all the facilities to be visited. He surveys them and checks them, uh, checks them out. I asked him if there was such a palace, and he said, well, yes, there is, in fact. I go there often to cast communications. Alexander Navalny's team has also identified one of Putin's yachts, the Sheherazade. Did you and colleagues discuss the boat? The stuff about the, the yacht came out after the war had already started. Accordingly I, did, accordingly, I did not want to talk to anyone, while everyone around was endlessly discussing the bloodshed with some relish. I couldn't speak to anyone, but I noted to myself that they had been shown lists of the FGS employees. Several of the names seemed very familiar. The thing is that when I'm on a business trip, I have to check the list of our employees. So in this case, I have no doubts either. That is his yacht, yes. You say you have installed special comms at non-stationary facilities. 
Well, what, what kind of facilities does it put in use? Planes, helicopters, yachts. Well, we call them all boats anyway. As well as a special train. Wait, wait, what is a special train? It's a train for the president. It first appeared in our schedule at some point in 2014 or 2015. It looks like an ordinary train, i.e. the same as all the other Russian railways trains, gray with a red, gray with a red stripe. And uh, why does the president use it? Because it's less conspic conspicuous. Planes shop in the certain services and networks, even on Twitter sometimes, whereas a train, well, how many of these great trains they, there, there are there? Most importantly, they cannot be tracked on any information resource. It's done for stealth purposes. Let's put in travel often by his train. In 2014 and 15, we just started working on it and equipping it in terms of using it regularly. That probably began somewhere between August and September 2021. It turns out that our employees had been quarantined for this special train. Since the beginning of the war, the guys said they would simply travel with the Valdai direction in the Valdai direction for about 40 days to 45 days. There may not be a train departure on your particular watch, but people are always ready for it. The president also has a telephone booth we take on every foreign trip. It's a, it's a place from which you can conduct talks with guaranteed confidentiality. The booth is, or is of course, bulky. It's a cube about 2.5 meters, meters high. And if, uh, well, to my American audience, of which you are a massive majority, I'm going to do this thing. I, I think it's about uh, 8 feet? Eight, 8 feet or so. Yeah, up approximately 8 feet high. Inside there is a workstation and a telephone, which one can use to talk without fear of these conversations being overheard or read by foreign intelligence. And hey, Langley guys, you have a target. Of course, I joke. I, I probably, you know, I have to make some fun. This was truly difficult to, to gather all everything together. And then he also, you know, spends some time talking about boats. Boats are not as fun as the train, because, you know... All of the ultra-rich are similarly, similarly stupid. They all, for some reason, think that getting tons of boats is cool. I mean, one is nice, but what would you do with so many anyways? But, again, back to the interesting parts. It is believed that Vladimir Putin has bunkers. That's what they call his residences. Have you ever been in a real bunker? I.A. bomb shelter. Have you set up communications there? Before, we did not rig up any bomb shelters. But this time, when we were on the Russian embassy in Kazakhstan's premises... While well, in the past, we used to install communications at the ambassador's office or the intercom room. In October, we installed another line in a bomb shelter. It's kind of paranoia. You are on another state's soil. The state is the summit's convener, providing all the security. The embassy's territory itself is also guarded. In other words, Vladimir Putin is afraid that there could be an attempt on his life during a trip abroad, and he will have to shelter in a bunker and contact someone from there? Well, what else is a bomb shelter for? If I, ta I take it that, well, yeah, he is afraid of this. And uh, then again, there's a bunch of details about his residences and all this stuff, but, um, yeah. The final part of this whole Putin's everyday life is the fact that, yeah, apparently, apparently Putin has not been, you know, living under the threat of assassination attempt. Well, he's afraid of it, but no such events have happened, as far as this person reports. And then the final part, the, the darkest one, of course, about, about the war. Looking back at February events, when do you think that you first guessed or knew with some certainty that was it? There would be war. There was nothing in his actions, no patterns. In terms of Putin's own actions, by judging by what was happening in the media, I already clearly understood that something was going to happen. Still, I did not think that there would be a full-scale war. You have been observing Vladimir Putin for quite a long time. As far as you are concerned, was the man you saw in 2009 and the man who announced the start of the war one and the same person? Or had he changed somehow? These are two different people in terms of behavior. When the former head of the FSB became prime minister and later president, he was energetic and active. He was, of course, just as active until 2020, judging by his many business trips. Now, he has shut himself off from the world with all kinds of barriers, the quarantine, the information vacuum. His take on reality has become distorted. A sane person in the 21st century who looks objectively at, objectively at everything happening in the world, let alone who can predict developments, at least in the medium term, would not have allowed this war to happen. You say your colleagues expound a rather jingoistic attitude. They support the president in this war. Did they even explain to you in conversation why they thought the war necessary? I will answer, of course, but these are not my words and it sounds horrible. The ratio is about 50-50. Half of the FGS think we should have blitzed the Maidan in Kiev with missiles back in 2014, while the others say 
Why? What else should we have done about Ukraine? Why? Why? What else should we have done about Ukraine now? Honestly, I'd, I hope there would be people who, at least in private conversations, would say something like, "Guys, this is war. People are dying." I hoped I would hear such phrases. Unfortunately, I do not hear such words, and they are almost hundred percent for Putin. And uh, well, a bunch of his early work. Again, like I said, I'm skipping bits and pieces of this stuff, which are quite lengthy, because, again, I really want to sleep. But um, what, again, turns interesting in this whole long conversation, for 10 hours, man, it's crazy, the fact that um, he speaks about alarm bells. There were a lot of alarm bells, besides Crimea. When you go to own business trips, you can witness all the preparations. When I saw the vast sums of money being spent so that one man could stay in his office, I had a lot of questions in my head. I may not have thought about it before, but after 2014 they started snowballing. Is this the only thing we can spend money on? I mean, that's a huge number of people. How much does it cost to, to cart them around to accommodate them? These are vast sums of money to spend on five-star hotels, on delegations, 200 strong. Business trips also always include a private program. An official flies in and spends some time in an office for the sake of a half-an-hour picture for TV. Later, they broadcast it as a two-minute clip, maybe even shorter. After which, he goes on to some spot in the mountains, a guesthouse, riverside, whatever, which is the, his private program. He flies in, makes an appearance, and then it's all over. Recent case in point, Mikhail Mishustin, uh, by the way, a Russian prime minister. Yeah, he's a, a tax person, very financial, stays silent about the war, mind you, because, you know, if he would have said something, I probably would have mentioned it. But he's way smarter than Dmitry Medvedev. Because Mishustin, like, he's basically an accountant. Very good one, but he also knows how to keep his mouth shut, which is interesting. Getting on. Mishustin was in Gorno-Altaisk. He spent about an hour and a half at an event. All along I was in the mountains, setting up a, li a link for the prime minister at the Altai village guesthouse. When we were there, the, the stay, the cheapest number... Again, I extremely apologize. Haven't slept, have... My nose is full, but um, this is just too big to, to, you know, let it go. I, I hope you'll forgive me. <clears throat> when we were there, staying in the cheapest cottage, cost around 120 to 130,000 rubles a day. Uh, that, that's uh, 130 euros to 150 euros. As euro is about the same as dollar. You know, pff, make your calculations. The most expensive cost around, uh, around 300,000 rubles a day. We had a large delegation, with all the cottages booked for seven days. This raises even more questions. You would not have been able to afford that vacation of your own. If you spend taxpayers' money on it, isn't it too much to spend on one person, I ask? And if it wasn't taxpayers' money, well, then it's outright corruption. These were the kind of alarm bells that were getting louder. Starting with 2014, I began to see it more clearly. But I continued to put up with it. After the 24th of February, I can't do it anymore. How do you explain the fact that you were the only F FGS officer to hear these alarm bells? Look, there are certain advantages to this, to this, of serving in the FGS. It's not a big salary, but it's stable. Take me, for example. I was earning around 80,000 rubles. And uh, 80,000 rubles is uh, 900 euros a month. Now, first of all, um, excuse me, I, I, I made a tiny little mistake in the, the, the past prices and... Super light. I'm probably not going to re-record this, but just add another zero. So instead of um, 140 bucks per night, it's uh, 1,400 bucks per night. I, I accidentally put in 13,000 rubles, not 130,000 rubles per night. So uh, that's a bit much. Yeah, uh, over like 15, uh, 14 to 1,500 uh, euros or dollars is insane. And this man, okay, yeah, he's an engineer in communications and um, basically what's Russian Secret Service, right? He makes 900 euros a month. Now, like I said, this kind of shows, um, plays in retrospective with all the other attitudes that they have with, um, with the personnel, with the staff. Which is why actually, you know, Allegedly, uh, there, there are, you know, they really don't treat a lot of the staff as actual human beings, more like as tools, but that's how the ultra rich deal sometimes, especially Russian ones. So uh, it is what it is. 80,000 rubles, 900 euros a month. I mean, look, it's not even bad by Latvian standards. Well, it 
is below our average salary. But, well, you could probably live in Latvia for that much. I don't know. At any rate, for me, out of all the things when I was working throughout this situation, I triple-checked his salary numbers. Yes, it literally says 80,000 rubles, which is 900 euros. I Look, I just have to throw out every idea that this whole thing is about massive profits anyway. This is just silly, but... That is what it is. Now, then he claims that there are some bonuses, and um, he's proud to have got somewhere between 100 and 110,000 rubles altogether, which is about 1,000 and 100 euros. Also, not that much. But, you know, he continues. This is not much for Moscow, of course, but on the whole, it's fine. Can it compensate for your permanent absence from your child? That's another question. But you can go on a business trip anywhere in the world. Places you could never afford on your 80 to 100,000, especially for earning less. So why do they keep supporting it? You know, it's hard to understand, really. Yet your colleagues see the equivalent of their whole salary being blown on the entertainment, not even in one hour, but in one minute, if not a second. Doesn't that make them feel uncomfortable? I wonder why it does not. Probably because they are part of it. Just imagine, a Kempinski hotel or some other excellent hotel where you would never stay in your other life. With top-class full-board catering. There must be something alluring about it, to be able to go places you would never go otherwise. And uh, another little tangent from me. Truth to be told, if it wasn't for you, dear listeners, I would also been, would never be able to go anywhere, really. I mentioned that on discussion, but uh, yeah, I've only traveled so much as I have because... You guys actually allow me to crash in your place, and I'm very happy to meet you and bring you souvenirs and hang out. But, but truly, I'm very thankful because traveling has has opened a lot of you know has opened a lot of doors to me, and I've seen a lot of things that would never even imagine that I would see ever in my life. When I was like a teen, I for for sure knew that I probably would never go to the United States, and now, well, yeah. There's the good parts and there are the bad parts, but all in all, again, things like this, you know, they really hit you because I think I think Western Europeans travel more than Americans also, but yeah, being able to travel from a post-Soviet country, well, right now it's a bit more affordable, like I can buy plane tickets, but but yeah, again, it is what it is. This, I'm just saying that this is a very strong cultural argument so that you understand the gist of it. And still, thank you. I too had to make a deal with my conscience, to turn a blind eye. It was as though as I had, it had nothing to do with me, and then okay, I could manage another two years to, to retirement. Colleagues also had reasons of their own. Pensions and child who, be, child who needs to be clothed and fed. This is more to do with their working in the FGS. If I support the war, I clearly see that they support it. I can't tell you why. The war has impacted the FGS directly. Secret service officers are involved in combat operations. While on a business trip to Veliki Novgorod, I talked to the guys from the local special communications and information center. They mentioned mobile communication units being dispatched to Ukraine from the special communication and information centers located in the central region. They also showed pictures of some units and systems that were completely destroyed. Five such comms unit systems, consisting of three vehicles each, with a crew, I can only assume, of five to six people. Judging by the pictures, there probably were no survivors. I learned about the mobilization in Veliki Novgorod on 21st of September, whereas that conversation took place a couple of days before it. I remember the day's look on the, of the man telling us all this about the F FGS officers killed in the war. And then a couple of hours later, the mood changed completely to now we shall teach him a lesson. Was it the same person? No, it wasn't the same man, but... The mood was exactly that. And then he finishes this whole thing with, with a long message to the FGS officers where he talks about corruption and the war and, you know, all the stuff that I know and you know and, well, we all know, but apparently they don't. Then it's a bit tragic because, you know, this kind of shows why it's probably... You know, the assassination attempts just really w wouldn't happen. Mike Cadillac would like to end this, though, with with his um, final two paragraphs. Which also shows, um, shows my attitude towards it, in a way. 
This criminal war should have never been started and should, have, should, should be ended as soon as possible. Life is the highest value. We have forgotten it in this country. People are nothing more than cannon fodder. This will continue to be the case as long as the FSG remains silent. This war has to end, and it's time to break the silence. So yeah. As you might have noticed, this was a bit rough, but um, gives you a lot to think about. And again, I'm fully authentic. I, I truly believe this really is an agent and he who he claims he is. But, well, I hope now, by now you understand why it was very important for me to actually give you the details at the beginning. Otherwise, otherwise it, um, yeah, would have been, would have been one of those cases where a bunch of you write emails to me saying that, you know, where's the proof and all this stuff. But, but here you go. That is what it is. Whenever on it edits the, the discussion, uh, the, I'll publish that one. It's going to be political philosophy. I really needed this because uh, it was hard to produce this one. It's it's long and it's messy and it's uh, difficult work, to be honest. I will be keeping up with, with our buddy Igor Girkin. We, mind you, have a, um, have a new art on our site and everywhere. We were selling a limited number of t-shirts. 15, to be exact, with uh, crying Igor Girkin, who's uh, holding a, a rocket with his letter Z on it. It is super funny. You can, like, check it out on Twitter or, or, or Mastodon. Yeah, I'm back on Twitter, to those of you who didn't notice, on, on my old personal account. I've been saying that here, but apparently, well, I have to repeat it again. At any rate, at any rate well, we'll keep you updated about everything, and, uh, you know, stay safe. I really appreciate all of you, and, well, life's a bit hard. You know, explosions happen, getting beaten up happens. Ugh. But then again, there are also the good stuff. And that's about it for today. Please, if you like the show, continue. Please consider becoming our patron. Oh, I am so sleepy, I can't even do the advertisement advertisement reel. You know what? Skip the advertisement reel. Do свидания, Remember, happiness is mandatory.